Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Last week, we worked through uh, the first half of Daniel chapter 7. I was hoping we would work to the end of the chapter today, but I don't think it's going to happen. Probably be here in the same chapter next week as well. If you weren't with us, uh, you will quickly notice that chapter 7 brings us into some new territory with what is known as apocalyptic literature, which will be found throughout the second half of the book. Uh, Before I read, here is the definition of apocalyptic literature that I shared last week from a man named Dale Ralph Davis, who is a former seminary professor at my school, Reformed Theological. He says, roughly, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised, discouraged, and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose His kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. If you didn't get all that, I'm going to restate it a number of different times. And this vision is communicated, this message is communicated through wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. So with that in mind, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 in Daniel chapter 7. I want someone else to read 15 to 22 and someone else 23 to 28. Who wants to read 15 to 22? I'll do it. Andy, now how about a lady to read uh, 23 to 28? And Okay. All right, follow as I read, starting in verse 1, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. (coughs) After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, you want me to read now, right? Yeah. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this... As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his kingdom shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right. Now, again, our temptation is to get lost in the imagery, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here. There's beasts and fire and... All sorts of stuff. But we have to remember the main point of apocalyptic imagery, which is that it seeks to enlighten and encourage God's people when they are outcast, when they are discouraged. And the encouragement and enlightenment that comes is a vision of God, primarily. Um, God who will come to impose His will, His kingdom, on, on human history. So we apply that to the situation in Daniel. God's people are in a tough place. Uh, They are cast off by the world. They're in exile in Babylon. And not too long ago, they wondered if they were cast off by their God. You know, they they were removed from the holy city, the holy temple, where they met with God, where they worshiped God, where they served God. And uh, but God gives Daniel a message via these apocalyptic images. It gives them some more understanding about what's going on right now, what's going to happen in the future. And while some of 
this is very terrifying for God's people, greater persecution. You know, he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. I mean, that's still to come at this point for Daniel. But ultimately, it is a very hopeful vision of the road ahead, a vision of God. Um, Let's recap a little bit of the terrifying so that we can better understand the hopeful. Verses 2 and 3. I saw in my vision... The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Anybody remember what the sea represents? The world. The world. Sinful man in rebellion against God. Um, The world when we, you know, like the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we mean it in its sinful context, uh, we don't want to be, we want to be in the world, not of the world, that, that kind of Sinful, rebellion world. What about the beasts? Verse 17, there are four great beasts or four kings who rise out of the earth. So it was four rulers on the earth, uh, four kings, four leaders of nations. And arising out of the earth, uh, you know, when we have this apocalyptic stuff, we just think strange things and we've seen movies and We think maybe this means like the mountains turn into demon kings or something like that, and that's not what it's talking about. It's just talking about kings coming to power on earth. That's that's all it means. Um, Who were the kings? Well, we talked about that a little bit last week. I think there's some good arguments for who they were. Um, But the gist of what we talked about was it doesn't really matter who the kings were. We are tempted to get fascinated by the beasts and, um, you know, speculate about this or that. But in so doing, we would lose or we could tend to lose the main point of apocalyptic, which is seeking to enlighten and encourage God's people from a place of being despised, discouraged, outcast. And what is the enlightenment and encouragement that comes? It is a vision of God. It is what God, who God is and what God is up to. That's the main point. Um, that we need to get. The main point is God. There's a place to talk about the kings. We, we did that a little bit last week, but we don't want to lose sight of the main thrust of the text, uh, which is being about God. So, uh, the backdrop is dark. Kingdoms of the earth in rebellion against God, having a devastating influence, especially for the people of God. But against that backdrop, The main thrust of the text is hopeful, and it's about God. Uh, So with that in mind, there are three main points that I want us to see from this chapter. We covered the first one last week. I'll mention it briefly. That was about God's sovereignty. Uh, This is a thread that runs throughout the chapter, starting in verse 2. I saw in my vision the four winds were stirring up the great sea. So the great sea is imagery of this world. It is... uh, you know, this present darkness, the chaos and disorder of this world in rebellion against God. But the four winds of heaven is imagery that's pointing us to God in His sovereignty. God is in control of the winds. The winds are governed from heaven. Um, And we're told that the four winds stir the great sea, which is showing us that God is sovereign over the sinful rebellion of the world. He governs even wickedness and evil toward His perfect ends. He knows exactly how to stir the rebellions of mankind in order to work them for His glory and His perfect ends. Uh, Of course, the greatest example is the death of Christ on the cross. You know, that was the greatest wickedness in the history of the world. 
the murder of the God-man at the hands of sinful men, but it was according to God's design for the greatest good in the history of the world, the salvation of mankind. He knows exactly how to stir the wickedness of man for his glory and the greatest good. Um, So in the text, not only is God's sovereignty hinted at in verse 2, also in uh, verse 6 and further developed in verse 9 and following, where we see God seated on the throne because while this, uh, these godless kings rule in chaos and, um, and disorder and instability, God is seated, He is steady, He is stable in His sovereignty. And not only is He steady and stable in His sovereignty, but He is pure, He's wise, He's just. And we see that in that uh, His clothing was white as snow, purity. His hair was white, uh, pure wool, wisdom. His throne, fiery flames. That's about judgment. Fire coming down from the throne, judgment. But we see that the wicked uh, were condemned in his time. That's God is just in his judgment. So we're being pointed to these aspects of God's sovereignty. Um, that's thus far a recap of what we covered last week. The next two points I want us to see are, uh, number one, the king and his global conquest, and number two, the glorious inheritance of God's people. We're really probably only getting to the first one this week, the king and his global conquest. Now, remember the context. Um, God's people are in exile. They're separated from their homeland. Daniel is longing to go home to Jerusalem. We saw that uh, when he's you know praying three times a day out the window and he's facing Jerusalem. And why is he facing Jerusalem? Well, because that's where they met with God. That's where they worshiped God. That's where everything was built. Um, around God, you know, the holy city, the holy people. They've been removed from all that. And so very much removed from um, their relationship with God in an important sense. So he's longing for God to gather his people back together um, to restore them to their homeland and to restore them to the right worship of him. And what is the point of apocalyptic? God's people are outcast. They're discouraged. God gives a vision of himself to encourage, enlighten, strengthen. So Daniel is in this place where he's familiar with the discouragement, the darkness part. Uh, He may not understand all that this vision entails. I don't think we should think that he does. Um, The beasts and the kings and who are they? He might have a hint, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and some of that. But a lot of this is still to take place beyond his time. Uh, But he does, you know, he lived through the sacking of Jerusalem. Um, And while Nebuchadnezzar seems to have maybe become a believer at the end of his life, he was the one who sacked the holy city, the holy temple, took the holy vessels out of the holy temple and brought them to this unholy land and brought the holy people to an unholy land. Um, So, you know, Daniel's familiar with the darkness. He's familiar with this discouragement. He's in a place of exile, but from that place he gets a vision. God on the throne, ruling over everything in His sovereignty with perfect wisdom and perfect purity, judging the wicked in His perfect timing. And in this vision, He also sees that there are a whole lot of people gathered before God's throne. Verse 10, a thousand thousand served Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. Now, um, maybe you don't know this, but for the Jews, uh, well, the number 1,000 was symbolic. It's a number of completion, 
Um, but it's also a number of great abundance. You know, might as well have said a bazillion bazillions. I mean, it's just this um, extravagant thousand thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. The point is extravagance, great abundance, overflow. Um, so we remember for Daniel and the Jews, uh, the service of God tied to the holy temple and the holy city, uh, that temple that Nebuchadnezzar sacked in the city, and he took the holy people out of the holy temple, out of the holy city. So Daniel's vision is a vision of restoration. These people gathered before God, God having restored His people to His service, right? To serve God is to be before God in the holy city and the holy temple and all that. But it's even greater than simply being restored to the former glory because the number 1,000. And that it's this glorious abundance. So when we see that a 1,000, 1,000 served God, 10,000 times 10,000, bazillion, bazillions, you know, not only is this a vision of restoration, this is a vision of glorious expansion. This is God doing something that has never been done before and, and expanding uh, His people. So not only has God gathered and restored His people to Himself, but He has significantly and incredibly added to their number. And we get a further development of this in verses 13 and 14. Centered around this one like a son of man. Who is this? Anybody know? Huh? Jesus. Jesus. Well, that's good. That's a good guess. That's exactly who it is. Um, Daniel did not know who this is. He had no idea. You know, the prophets saw things and spoke things they had no idea about. They longed to know what they were saying, what they were speaking about. Uh, but they didn't know. But we look back on the Gospels. This was Jesus' favorite way to refer to Himself, the Son of Man. Uh, one example, Mark ten forty five: The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see him refer to himself this way over and over again. I read, uh, you know, different amounts, but north of 50 times when you combine the, uh, all of the Gospels, you're going to see this kind of language. Uh, why did he do that? Well, you ask that question and you ask some commentators and they say, well, one reason is he was referring to his humanity. We need to know that, you know, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And this title, the Son of Man points us to His humanity. Um, and that's true, but even more so than that, it points us back to Daniel 7. One like a son of man who came before the Ancient of Days. It's just a name for God. To Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is indestructible. So while the title Son of Man points us to Jesus' humanity, when we see how it's used in the context of Daniel 7, it's really even more about His divinity. Lord of all peoples, nations, languages, the eternal King of God's eternal, indestructible kingdom, Lord of lords and King of kings. This is the one that was promised to King David hundreds of years before the time of Daniel in 2 Samuel 7, where he was said not only to be a son of David, but also to be a son of God. Of course, it threw everyone for a loop because Jesus was not exalted to his throne in glory 
um, in the way that people thought he would be. You know, we're looking for military conquest of the Romans. They're the bad guys. In fact, he was conquered by the Romans and the Jews. But little did they know that his death was the death blow that was needed uh, to his enemies. In his death, Jesus conquered Satan. He conquered his people's sins. And in his resurrection, he conquered death. But not only that, upon his resurrection, Jesus also inherited his dominion, glory, and kingdom. And what is the nature of that dominion, glory, and kingdom? In Matthew 28, he said to his disciples after he rose, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He died. He rose. And upon his rising, all authority, heaven and earth, given and trusted to him. The nature of that dominion was exhaustive um, over all things. There, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to show you another passage that talks about this in a little different way about the dominion and glory and kingdom of Christ Hebrews 2 6 through 9 Hebrews 2 6 through 9 what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have now crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's it. All power, all authority, all control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. This is the way he came into his glory. Jesus died for our sins. He rose to make us right with God. And upon his rising, he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, all authority in heaven and on earth. To what end? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So all things have put, been put already in subjection to Christ. He is right now enthroned in glory with His dominion, expansive, all authority, heaven and on earth, Lord of lords, King of kings. And even while we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him, we know that it is true because God told us it's true. That's the way things are. And we know that in God's time, it will be proven to be true. So at the end of time... Jesus will have saved the world. All peoples, nations, and languages will serve Him. And one of the amazing things is that He uses us. He uses His people to flesh out His dominion, the coming of His kingdom. So when He rose, He said to His disciples, All authority, heaven and earth, has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, because it's Mine. It's My dominion. It's My kingdom. And given that... Go do this. Go prove it. Go flesh it out. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you until the end. Until it's done. Until we finish. Um, when Jesus came into His dominion, glory, and kingdom, He gave His disciples the Great Commission. 
The Great Commission is still in effect for us, for all of God's people, until the Great Consummation, when all peoples, nations, and languages do indeed serve Him. That day is coming. All things have been put in subjection to Him, even if we don't see everything in subjection to Him. We don't live by sight. We live by faith. And in light of that knowledge, we labor to make it so. Now, let's go back to the, uh, the point of apocalyptic. Anybody want to try their hand at what that is? What's the point? To enlighten and encourage God's people who are outcast, who are discouraged. Well, how do they get enlightened and encouraged? stories. <laughs> no, no, they, the scary stories uh, certainly get their attention and, and it is an important part of, uh, of what is being revealed, but ultimately what is being revealed for their enlightenment and encouragement is, is God, who God is, a vision of God, um, what God is up to in the world, in this scary world. That's, you know, the scary story is kind of their reality. I mean, here they are, these great beasts coming up in the world, the the kings, the evil kings. And Daniel's like, check, you know, got that. Here we are uh, under the reign of evil kings. But all is not lost. God is up to something. And uh, the vision that comes of God is not that everything's going to be okay in the short term. In fact, there's suffering that's promised for God's people in the short term. Verse 25. That little horn that speaks against the Most High and wears out the saints of the Most High. That's a scary little phrase. Wears out the saints of the Most High. That's a part of what God is revealing. So it is scary. It's not that everything's going to be alright tomorrow. But it's what who God is and what God is ultimately up to that all things will be gloriously right in the end. And ultimately that they're moving in that direction now. Um... Daniel and Jewish people in exile in Babylon, their nation is in shambles. They're under the reign of wicked rulers. And yet, from that place, they get a glimpse of what God is up to. The Son of Man is going to come. He's going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And we're not just talking about God's people being restored to Jerusalem. A thousand thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. Every people group, every nation, every language. And indeed, from our side of things, that Son of Man has already come. He has already inherited His dominion, His glory, and His kingdom. His global conquest is now underway. We know that because here we are. And we know that He will not stop until all peoples, all nations, and all languages are serving Him. We know that He will return again for the glorious consummation of this vision in the end. So there's a few things to think about just uh, in application. And again, we're going to get more to our role in some of this next week um, as we talk about the glorious inheritance of God's people that's revealed in this passage. But one thing, just as we are dealing with this apocalyptic imagery, part of this is because it's the world we've grown up in, but um, we tend to think that all of this is about something future. And uh, certainly while, you know, there are future 
aspects and their or future um, intention, certainly for Daniel in this, a lot of this was still out in the future. And, and in our application, some things are still future. We, it hasn't all happened yet. Um, but we do need to pay attention to how the Bible interprets the Bible in order to understand some of the um, you know, things that are here. Like Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's already done. He's all, we see in Hebrews chapter 2 that all things have already been put in subjection under His feet. It's already done. Now, we don't yet see everything fleshed out. We don't yet see everything in subjection under His feet. That doesn't mean it's not done. It is done. And it's just in God's time going to be fleshed out to be proven true. Um, you know, the point is, the global conquest is underway and all of this is not out in the future about some millennial kingdom off in the ages. It happened now. It happened in you know, the death and resurrection of Christ, the ministry of Christ, His, his death and resurrection, which is the centerpiece of all of human history <coughs> and is His claim to His glory and His kingdom and His authority and His dominion. So um, that's an important thing to know as we read through these kinds of passages. Are there things still future in, uh, you know, some apocalyptic... Yeah, there are, but not all of it is future, as I think uh, we're led to believe sometimes. Uh, Next thing, and we're going to, again, talk more about how our service to the King fleshes out, but um, let's just say right now, I mean, you know, maybe we're tired, we had some tryptophan and uh, we're just kind of groggy. But if there's any bit of us that can lock, lock in to what God is revealing to us in this text, I mean, just the glorious kingdom of God and that this is the point of all history. You know, there's going to be some wickedness. There's going to be some tyrant rulers. There's going to be some bad things for, for God's people. But this is where it's all going. And this is what I'm doing. What more could you want in your life than to serve Christ? Really? I mean, what else is there? You know, we flesh that out in some mundane tasks and uh, in our jobs, and our jobs are more valuable than we probably think. You know, we probably need to do a study on vocation so we don't think that this means everyone needs to go become a missionary. That's not what this means. But just in the place that God has us, as employers or employees or as husbands or wives or fathers or mothers or whatever it is, um, churchmen, that what else would we want than to serve Christ? As citizens of Germantown and Collierville and East Memphis and wherever else you live, Cordova, what else would we want? What else could you want? There's nothing greater than to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is in subjection to Him right now. And one day it will be proven so. Why would we waste our time in this life trying to make a great name for ourselves? As opposed to making His name great. Doing all things for His glory. Um, What more could we want for our children? than that they serve Christ. You know, there's a lot out in front of us. There's a lot vying for their attention. There's a lot that we want for them. But we need to evaluate those desires. And if it is not that um, His name be great, we won't miss it.
And the next thing, as our culture changes, um, as we're pushed more to the margins as Christians, it's going to happen, it's happening. You know, promises, visions like these are going to become more and more um, precious. I'm speaking on a... uh, to a pastor's conference in India in February, and I'm thinking about doing a series in Daniel chapter 7 because, you know, they're more marginalized. They're under the reign of a Hindu nationalist tyrant who wants to push out Christianity. Uh, so maybe they have a little more of a darker context where they can understand some of this. Maybe that day's coming for us. But just, they don't see Christ's global mission. They have a country that's 85% Hindu, worshiping false gods that they can see everywhere. They're, they're idiotic, foolish, stupid elephant heads all over the nation that they bow before. Wood and stone. They're like, this is terrible. Yeah, it is. But look at the vision that you get. Look at what God is doing. He's, he's come to establish His kingdom. His kingdom will never be destroyed. All these other kingdoms are coming down. And all things are under Christ's feet, even now, even if we don't see Him. He's at work here. His kingdom is coming here. He has you here. We're going to talk about this next week. He has you here for the expansion of His kingdom here. Um, The glorious consummation in the end. Behold, I looked. There was a multitude so great, no one could number it. From every tribe, from every people group, from every nation, from every language. That's what's going to happen. And... um, You know, I know how things look now, but we remember that it didn't seem so great to Daniel when he was with people of Israel in exile, but God was not finished. I know how things look now, but I remember that it didn't seem so great when Jesus was in the ground, but God was not finished. Death could not hold him. It was all a part of God's plan, and in the same way, there are going to be many times in history, many times in our own lives, when all seems to be lost, when we seem to be essentially in the ground, but we cannot forget that we serve the God of the resurrection, the King of the eternal, indestructible kingdom. Let's pray and we'll have a few minutes for thoughts. Father in heaven, uh, you are the God of all glory. Lord, Press these truths into our hearts and minds that we might glory in who you are. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of Man. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You have been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve you. All authority, all power is yours. We know that you are enthroned in heaven. Lord, and we know all things are under your feet, even if we don't see them that way. And so would you, would you just cause us to hope in who you are and what you're doing? Would you cause us to evaluate the allegiances in our hearts that we might, uh, that you and you alone would be our first place? God, I pray that you would apply this in... Uh, all over the places where there are discouragements in our lives, because while we may not be a people completely outcast in exile, certainly there are discouragements, and uh, might we hope in what you're doing, and that we are the most privileged of all people, that you have, by your grace and mercy, 
gathered us uh, to be yours and that we are a part of this glorious inheritance in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Help us to believe it even when we don't see it. And we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Anyone have any questions or thoughts? No, that's okay. Well, I have a question. So, what year was this? What year did this take place? I mean, I guess the vision. The vision. I don't know. They went into captivity in five eighty six. Came out seventy years later. So, sometime in between that. Okay. He's been there a while. This is Belshazzar, not Nebuchadnezzar. So. I don't know how long his rule was, but let's say in the middle of that, so uh, 550 B.C. How come? No, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know. Sometimes my world history is like, yeah. it happened 20 years ago. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can't remember, you know, like I know the Romans were in power when Jesus came, and I'm like, well, what happened between Babylon? Like, what yeah. happened in Well, I think that a big part of this vision is that. I mean, the beasts, we talked a little last week about you know, the beasts are four kings, four rulers, four kingdoms. Uh, that last kingdom is the real, real strong one, the real devastating one. I think that's pointing to Rome. Uh, ten horns, ten rulers. Uh, the last one is the worst one kind of thing. And uh, But all of this is still out in front of Daniel. Not all of it. But you think about how wild this is to him. He doesn't see any of this. All he sees is... And I mean... It's about to just continue, right? I mean, there's going to be another king come in. The Medo-Persians, Belshazzar is going to fall, and there's a, a transfer of kingdoms. But it's not like that's immediate liberty for Daniel and his people. Now, he is seeing God's hand of faithfulness throughout this, but this seems pretty fanciful to us. Imagine what it felt like to Daniel. It was all still out in front of him. There was no son of man having come in the flesh yet. And... Uh, no death and resurrection. It's pretty interesting. But um, nonetheless, was for his encouragement. And he did see uh, deliverance from Babylon. He did go back home. Uh, but even then, you have to know that these visions are... He's in wonder and worship of God saying, Yeah, but what about the thousand thousands? What about the all nations and languages? This isn't it. This isn't where he's stopping. You know, pretty cool. I just kept thinking too, what an encouragement, because when you say, you know, the saints being worn out, you know, I was like, who of us in here hasn't experienced that? Like yeah. There are seasons that we just feel like either we're in sin or grief and we just can't experience the joy or hold on fast to the truth. Yeah. But that His is the everlasting kingdom, that we, you know, in His grace, He eventually, it feels like, pulls us out, gives yeah. us this glimpse that there is going to be a day that's made right. And there is a little bit of hope that everybody feels that. You know, yeah. there are hard seasons that we have to endure, but He is going to persevere us to the end. Yeah. And, uh, it's just very encouraging. Well, good. And that's, you know, we might be tempted to say, well, we're not suffering under a time, well, you know, a tyrant ruler and all that now, 
Um, we, not, we might have idiot leaders, but we don't. We may not have tyrant leaders. And um, but don't miss the point. It's just that God's people will continue to suffer. God will continue to be faithful. God is doing something uh, glorious in all of that and moving us toward this eternal inheritance in His eternal kingdom. So, okay, good stuff. Next week, more about our inheritance and our role in the kingdom.